Hey everybody, so today's episode is sponsored by Mill Creek Entertainment and Mutiny Pictures' supernatural revenge flick, I Am Lisa, which is now available to rent or own on DVD, Blu-ray, and digital. It took a town to beat her down and a full moon to get revenge. That's right, there's a werewolf in this one. Bitten by a werewolf, a young woman seeks revenge against those who left her for dead in the woods. The film stars Kristen Vaganos and co-stars Jennifer Seward. Manon Halliburton, Carmen Aneo, and Chris Bilsma. The film is available at Walmart stores and other online outlets and is packed with bonus features like a feature commentary with the writer-producer, director, and lead actress. Plus, it includes a digital HD redemption to Movie Spree, where you can also rent the film and add it to your Movie Spree digital library. Ooh. That's exciting. And w- before we move on, it's once again time for us to remind you about our benevolent overlords over at Fangoria, who are still going strong after all these years. Uh, they've got a new issue coming out this month with two collectible covers, plus a ton of cool shit planned for the rest of the year. And if you want to be a part of it, head on over to Fangoria.com to get subscribed. And if it's your first time subscribing, make sure to enter the code KINGCAST to get 25% off your annual subscription oh and also also the fangoria chainsaw awards will be live streaming on shutter on april 18th so do save the day for that now on with the show hi my name is stephen king the ice is gonna break Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Today we have a very interesting guest. Uh, He's the award-winning director behind such documentaries as 2019's The El Duce Tapes, 2015's Terrifying The Nightmare, and 2012's Room 237, which explored Stanley Kubrick's The Shining from some of the most uh, inconceivable angles imaginable. His next effort, A Glitch in the Matrix, recently premiered at this year's Sundance Film Festival and is available via video on demand even as we speak. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Rodney Asher. Rodney, how are you doing today? I'm good. Hey, Eric. Hey, Scott. Thanks for thanks for having me. You were somebody that uh, people have been asking us if we were going to have on the show for some time. And the We're like, every no, time we get really desperate. Well, my thought was always like, well, I don't want to I don't want to do I was worried that you were going to want to do The Shining, you know, and I, I was like, uh, no, I think it's much more interesting if you pick something else. But then it turned out we were more or less on the same page about that. Well, yeah. I mean, remember that moment in um, what Spike Jones adaptation where um, the orchid guy you know, talks about those different phases that he went through. And at one point he was a fisherman and there the day came where it was like fuck fish. And he didn't <laughs> want to see another one for the rest of his life. Right, right. right. I, I'm not exactly there, but for 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 the for, for the most part, I've moved on from The Shining. I, I kind of got it all out of me uh, with that project. Yeah, I imagine you would have had your fill by now. Are people still like emailing you wild conspiracy theories and shit? Well, I wouldn't call them a conspiracy theories, but yeah, I just got, um, I, I got two of them, you know, last week and apparently one of them is going to be a book. So, um, you know, just cause the movie is over doesn't mean that people haven't stopped, you know, looking at the shining through a uh, fine tooth comb. Have you, have you seen the more recent 
like breaking open the the movie in whole new ways articles that reveal that Jack Torrance might not be a good guy and might be in fact kind of problematic. <laughs> yeah, 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 I've seen those. Shocking I, to say the least. Sh- I, there you go. There's your there's your follow-up documentary. Nobody ever noticed that before. Yeah. Well, I love it when the fish jumps right into the boat. <laughs> uh of course room 237 pretty much uh puts you on the map for a lot of us that's how how i first learned of you and and became a fan but uh i i do want to point out that the nightmare is truly terrifying that is that is an amazing piece of work i don't well, know what i have to add to that but okay. it just the <laughs> thank you <laughs> yeah I, I'd never heard of sleep paralysis before that. I've been blessed to not have to deal with any of that stuff. And I'm watching it going, it can't be that bad. And then I find out like half of my friends are like, holy shit, that got me. That's exactly what it's like. And I'm yeah. just like, holy, this is like a real deal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we had the most amazing like screening when we premiered it that, you know, I kind of put myself out on a limb when I walked up, you know, um, to talk to the, to talk to the audience. And I said, how many folks here have gone through anything kind of like what you've seen in the film, you know, and if nobody raised their hand, I would have really looked like an asshole. But (laughs) as it turned out, you know, like 30% of the crowd raised their hands and, you know, the folks who didn't and had watched the whole thing, you know, very skeptically were at least as astonished as the ones who found out how much (laughs) company they had. (laughs) When I I was making it, I could never talk to, you know, more than two or three people about the project without one of them, you know, confessing to me the ghostly footsteps that they've seen appear in shag rugs or, you know, what have you, that all their supernatural visitations, they're so much more common than I think anybody thinks. Yeah. My wife kind of deals with it a little bit. She has like a version of that. It's not quite the same thing, but also it is. Um, yeah. Well, the, the borders get really blurry on the edges, you know? Yeah, for real. I imagine there's many different flavors of it and, and she has one of them. So, uh, nope, she is she was not very, alone. She was frightened by the movie, of course. I don't know if she was a fan because it scared her so much, but <laughs> but, I, but I, yeah, yeah. I, I was kind of astonished how many people wrote me, you know, and found it therapeutic, you know, because you know when I was making it, I never really considered what I was making something a form of therapy for mm-hmm. anyone that it was going to relax them. And, and make them feel better. But I think just, again, just the notion that you're not the only crazy person this is happening to is hugely reassuring. And, you know, it wasn't my case too, because I, I had, I, I experienced it, you know, in the nineties and it was two or three years before I found out that it was a condition that had a name and happened more or less consistently to people. But, you know, I was, I was a hundred percent convinced that I'd experienced a demonic visitation at the time. Huh. That's wild as hell. I had a, a friend recently tell me that his wife has just recently begun in the middle of the night. It's happened like two or three times in the last few weeks now. She just sits bolt upright in bed and go and wakes him up and says, says, what are you doing in here? Get out of here. Get out of oh, here. No, like Somebody's in the room. <laughs> And oh, then no. he like he freaks out, and then she just lays back down and goes to sleep. And he now he's up for like <laughs> for like hours, just clutching his pillow, going like, "What's what the fuck's going that's on? what that's what my wife does sometimes though. Like she, yeah. basically the exact same thing, except uh, it was like she had gone to bed for the night, and I was up doing whatever. And when I came into the room, you know, I'm always coming in very quietly because you respect a sleeper in this household. 
And it's like I had the door open, so there was a little bit of light coming in from behind me, so enough coming into the room where I could see her like outline. And she sat up in bed and was just like, who are you? And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, what is this now? And she and I was like, what? And she said, uh, who are you? And I'm like, go back to sleep. And she went back to sleep. Like, and I and I just stood there in the doorway, like rattled as shit. Like, did not <laughs> know how to process that. This is a different thing, but I'm just remembering I had I, I had one that was really strange once where I think I had, you know, sort of fallen asleep in the middle of the day. And, you know, my wife brushed up against me, like, you know, poked me on on the side on the couch, and I sprang up and I yelled, Who are you? And she said, I'm your wife. And I replied, I have a wife. <laughs> it was it was like I it was like a hard reboot with like none of my memory had 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 had, had loaded in and it took a few seconds to access, you know, because I wasn't fucking around right. at all. I yeah. was just totally flummoxed. It's like those videos you see of uh of like teenagers that go get their wisdom teeth taken out and they're just like drooling with mouthfuls of cotton, just like totally like you're, you're not my, you're not my brother. You're not my mom. It's Shit is uh, weird, dude. I've only really had that. Like when I've, cause I used to travel a lot for, um, uh, for work, for movie writing stuff. I'd go visit lots of sets and go to junkets, do interviews and all that stuff. And so it, I would find that if I would travel a lot in a short period of time, like if it, I was in a different hotel room, you know, for like three days straight in a different city or whatever, I would always have a moment where I'd wake up and not know where I was, why I was there. Like sometime in the middle of the night, everything would just be not right. You know, this isn't, this isn't my room. Like who, you know, where, where am I? Why am I here? Kind of thing. And it, it is honestly super scary. It it is legit. Like you just have no control uh, Mm. over reality in a certain way. And it's, it's legit frightening. Yeah, well, and the computer, you know, metaphor is probably the best one about, you know, and, and Scott, you just lived through this of files not booting um, right. and programs not loading. Usually it only takes a couple seconds, but I guess that's what amnesia is. You know, that file not, you know, 40, error 404, file not found. And their dementia, yeah. And speaking yeah. of, uh, you know, our sense of reality being at question, A Glitch in the Matrix tackles this, yes? Can you tell us a little bit about the movie? Well, sure. You know, it's about simulation theory. You know, the idea that we're all living in something more or less like, you know, the matrix. Uh-huh. And, you know, it's told a lot like the nightmare 237. You know, the bulk of it are people, you know, people who believe that, who are talking about their, you know, their personal experiences, what happened to them um, to make them think it and how that's changed the way they, the, the way they live. You know, I always like to sort of get a little conceptual with the way that I visualize these stories, you know? So um, this one's all computer animation and some of it is fairly lo-fi. Some of it, um, well, I think actually looks pretty good, but it's all, um, you know, every element is kind of processed through the digital world. You know, we even did all the interviews on Skype, which in a weird way is kind of funny because, you know, we did it, you know, both to save money for the animation, but also thinking it was kind of um, on message with the theme of the movie, but since we finished it, you know, everybody is talking on through zoom windows. Um, right. So it feels in a, in a weird way, sort of like a parody of that, you know, cause we've got like these animated characters speaking from their uh, Skype backgrounds, but just a strange coincidence though. I'm no stranger to those. 
Would you say that uh, a glitch in the matrix reaches the cinematic heights, uh, specifically in terms of special effects, as the movie that you brought us to discuss today? Not, not, not if you you know um, adjust for, adjust for inflation. <laughs> <laughs> you brought us Lawnmower Man too, and we're we're going to talk about why you picked this one if, in case it's you know, anything other than a, a, a connection to the movie that, you know, you've just made. But let's start with your Stephen King origin story. Like, uh, when, when did he first come onto your radar as a... Yeah, well, I mean, I really got into him in high school, right? And, yeah. you know, being the kind of completest I am, is like I started, you know, with Carrie and kind of moved through chronologically. And I went reading nothing but Stephen King all the way, including the Bachman books and the Talisman, up to the stand. You know, and I don't know if that was a two, three year process or it was the entirety of my high school uh, career. <laughs> but then I looked at it, you know, which, and, you know, see also, you know, the thing about those early books is each one got a little longer and a little longer mm-hmm. and a little longer. And I loved them and they just went down like candy. But when I looked at the mountain, that was it. I had to take a break because he, looking at, the, the the other books that he had finished and was continuing to release that that was happening at a rate faster than I could read. And that if I continued reading Stephen King, I would read nothing but him for the rest of my life. <laughs> so, so I took a little break there, but through high school, I mean, I was obsessed and I especially like the introductions, right. Where, you know, he's sort of cracking a beer in front of the fireplace with you right. and setting up the experience. Yeah. Um, you know, I've always, Thought. I, 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 I was lucky enough to see him do a live reading once. Um, and then I kind of got into his audiobooks. And, you know, for me, the sort of the platonic ideal of listening to, of experiencing a Stephen King story is hearing him tell it, you mm-hmm. know, this sort of cadence of his voice and the main accent and, you know, the way he pauses to, to set the table, you know, in later years, like in the 90s, I was splitting my time between San Francisco and LA, and it was a, a six-hour commute. So I would always be um, picking up audiobooks from the library. Mm-hmm. Um, and his his were gone as soon as somebody returned them. But I would find one, and really, with one stroke, it turned that six-hour drive from a chore you know, to a real pleasure. But here, so... <laughs> all right, so this is a story that... Um, it is September of the year 2001, and my wife and I, I guess she was my girlfriend then, um, we were living in Sin, that um, we had planned on taking a, a trip to Italy, you know, that we had saved up for, for a while, and we had this whole amazing itinerary planned, and literally the flight was booked for September 12th. Um, <laughs> so Good Lord. That didn't so you happen. went to Italy, and it was beautiful. Yeah, and we had an amazing time, right? And got to see the world, got got to take a little break from the intensity that was going down. But no, so we went on a road trip and, you know, I hit the library and I scooped up a bunch of books, including Stephen King's uh, Blood and Smoke, right? Which yeah, has yeah. three stories that at that point, I think two of them hadn't been published anywhere. So it felt like really, it, it, so it was, it was a real find, you know, that it came, it was like on that new book um, shelf. And there's this place, 
I think it might be in Texas. It's been a while. It might be New Mexico. It's been a while since we went called the Lightning Fields, right? Mm -hmm. Which is this art installation way out in the middle of nowhere. And what it is, it's like a grid of these chrome poles that are designed to capture lightning. You know, I don't know. There's 100, 200 of these poles, each one of them maybe 10 or 15 feet apart. And they're like polished, reflective. And you, you need to make a reservation to go. And what happens is, you know, you pull up at some, at a country store, on a dirt road, and a guy shows up in a four by four and he drives you out there and you're going to stay overnight in this cabin. Because right? they want you to do nothing but reflect on, you know, the majesty of this field and these, and these chrome poles. And, you know, because of 9-11, et cetera, um, you know, a window opened up that we could go, that there were cancellations. And so there's two bedrooms and we were going to share this place with, um, you know, another couple of people that we didn't know. You know, so we drive out there, the guy picks us up and, you know, more or less blindfolds us and takes us out into the middle of the desert. And there's a, a cabin with a refrigerator full of food for that night and water. And, you know, because it's such a unique experience, you know, there's no cell phone connection. There's no TV. There's no radio. They don't, they don't have even any books there. You're just supposed to reflect on the art. Do you um, only go two at a time? Four people can go at a time. Gotcha. And you stay over and you stay overnight. Cause actually, cause like the most amazing, the, the best part of it is sunset where, the poles all change different colors. And if you go and if you're lucky, you'll see lightning strike and it'll strike like all over them. And that didn't happen that night, but it was still kind of cool. And so we go back and we have dinner and it's like seven o'clock, you know, and there's nothing to do. And I say, you know, I've got a boom box and a audio book of Stephen King stories. Maybe it would be fun to listen to ghost stories. And the other couple, there's nicest goddamn people in the world. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and they barely know us, but they say, oh, okay, you know, that's, that sounds like fun. And the story that comes up is in the death room. I knew it. I fucking knew you were going <laughs> to <say that. laughs> You know, and if, you know, and if you guys listening at home don't know that story in and out, you know, it's about a Central American torture chamber. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we're drinking wine again with these, the nicest, nicest people that, <laughs> that we've never met and you know it starts off as kind of intense this guy gets captured and tied to a chair and says, you better talk and he's like i'm not gonna talk <laughs> and as it unfolds you know my i'm looking at the at the wheels spinning and saying how much more to this story is there and should i just say something and stop or and like these people if they want if they don't want to listen anymore they can go in the other room or ask us to stop we're not forcing them and they had said that they wanted to hear it and then at a certain point, this guy gets his anus electrocuted. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, they're going to think that we're serial killers. Right. <laughs> Out here at a lightning field talking about assholes getting electrified. With no place, with literally impossible to, like, if if they were afraid for their lives because of being trapped with these sickos, I was like 10 miles back to civilization through the desert <laughs> at night with no active phone. Yeah, they were definitely like, we're getting cattle prodded in our sleep tonight. That's <laughs> people are electrical freaks. <laughs> um, you know, and he escapes and murders them. Um, and, you know, I was just, I know it was probably like 40 minutes that, you know, I was just sweating bullets and thinking, <laughs> <laughs> and thinking, 
they could ask me to stop if the, if I want. Should I stop? Should I ask them? Would that break? Or are they into this story? I don't know what's going on in their heads. You know, I'm just trying to stare at them to see if they were into it or if they were, you know, just horrified. I mean, certainly when it ended, they were like, "Yep, well, thanks. We are going to bed now at eight <laughs> fifteen. We'll see you guys." I think I would. I think I would. I, I understand the the social anxiety of it, but I think I would have turned it off. I thought would I think I would. My move would yeah, have you're, been. You're a better. You're a better person than me. But I think I would have just been like, click. All right, so that's setting the wrong mood. Let's uh, let's play cards, you know. Yeah. Like, that, that was probably the move, but had to know, see it through to the end. Well, and, and I was like, "This is Stephen King. It's not." I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm trying to think of some Dr. guy who's or <laughs> somebody who's a, a thousand times more. Like this is probably only going to be R rated. It's not going right. to be Jack Cash that extreme, but it is like yeah, but yeah. but. I mean, it is fairly extreme, even by you know, even by his uh, by his standards. I mean, it you think maybe like survivor type kind of goes there, but m- most of them don't hit quite that hard. Don't don't play quite that rough. No, it's a torture story. Those are never going to be uh, fun and games. Yeah, well, but I didn't all I didn't know anything about what the story was going to be. I mean, I had a sim. I remember there was a, a Christmas where, you know. Um, my mother-in-law, you know, so oh, you like comic books. Here's, um, I bought you Spider-Man and the family all, you know, the extended family all decided to watch, you know, Sam Raimi's first Spider-Man movie. But again, by most standards, that's a fairly mild movie, but yeah, that beat down at the end between Spider-Man and the Green Goblin is fairly vicious. And if it's, and, and it was loud enough that it was just, you know, kind of a mortifying watch with, you know, <laughs> with the, with, with the in-laws. Um, yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, I've had those with you know watching Monty Python's um, "Meaning of Life" with my parents, which was ex- <laughs> which was excruciating the torture session. Yeah, "Meaning of Life" is like it's one of those ones where in your head it's like, oh yeah, that's fine. There's there's nothing objectionable really in this, but yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah there, there is. is. There's quite a bit, and like the scene with with Cleese like fucking his wife in front of the classroom. Particularly uncomfortable to watch with your parents. I can I can vouch for that specifically. <laughs> or, or or the the topless roller skaters who yeah. crushed that guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Context, context, context. Always. So you wanted to do Lawnmower Man too. I'd I'd like to hear more about your thought process on this, up to and including whether you had seen it or not before you. I hadn't it. seen it. I'd seen the first one. Mm-hmm. You know. Um. Both I'd, I'd seen the first one when it came out, and then I was kind of scanning through it for for B roll for uh, Glitch in the Matrix, where we um, because <laughs> there's there, there's some you know '90s cyber there's some B roll from cyber uh, thrillers of the '90s uh, in that one. I hadn't seen the sequel, but I mean, when it's a question of um, you know what what am I going to pick? I mean, I'm a you know I'm a crate digger. Um, you know, I love. I, I I love B rare rare cuts and B sides, and I was curious if this one was any good, um, or just how much further into absurdity it was going to go. But I mean, thinking of the first one, I mean, I also am just generally kind of fascinated with the question. I mean, I think your show talks a lot about you know adaptations of well, what counts as an adaptation? How loose right. can it be, and it still counts? Famously, a lot of people argue about whether you know The Shining is close to if if Kubrick shining is close to Kings and I kind of think it's closer than a lot of people ask, but you know, I remember I was 
arguing recently about um, uh, Watchmen, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and compare the movie to the HBO miniseries, and it's kind of fascinating that you know the movie not only does it draw dialogue scenes, you know, characters really strictly from it, you know, and even what's kind of cool, you know, frames that they kind of, you know, reconstruct yeah. the compositions of, but the tone is pretty different. And then the HBO show barely has any moments. I don't know. I, I think it has zero moments from the book, though there are a couple of characters that overlap, but I felt the tone was really powerfully reflective of uh, of the original book totally agreed totally agreed that's uh it, that thing it, was think... a miracle that show that yeah that it would be you know when they announced it, it was like oh fuck what are they doing now and then damon lindelof wrote that open letter to everyone that was like this isn't gonna be you know the watchman you know this is something else and it's sort of a remix it's sort of this it's sort of that and another red flag goes up you're like oh fuck man like but then it was you know the casting started coming together and they get Reznor and ross on board to do the score and then the first footage looked incredible it was like you know it went from red flags to holy shit what if this thing actually rules and it ruled so hard i love that show dearly I, I think i've watched it through about three times now yeah and well and and you know and to compare to lano or there's a weird sort of echo of you know the original writer having his name pulled yeah you know for, for, for one reason or another that's um, true you know i was i in the last year i rewatched for the first time oh rewatched for the first time i had but <laughs> i'd seen it but it'd been been a long time you know i watched i rewatched Stuart gordon's from beyond mm-hmm. and i had been reading some lovecraft short stories and you know that one the short story ends at the title sequence yeah and then they just keep going you know if, if you're, if you're going to pick on the lawnmower man you know if you take the you know even just the minutes from the movie that have something to do with the short story. It's in the neighborhood of from beyond, right? Like when the mower comes in and kills, uh, kills the guy in the house. Um, yeah, the, and the, the cops are talking about the birdbath that, you know, the tone is completely different and the ideas are completely different. Yeah. I, well, it, it really boils down to what you want in an adaptation. And that d- definition is set by, Every individual. Um, there are some people, and you've seen them on the internet, that it's not a, a true adaptation if it doesn't cover every single thing that they personally liked in the book or in the comic or whatever. Um, I'm I'm more with you. It's like to me, it's got to feel right. It's got to feel like the feeling I got while reading. That's why you know I'll, I'll to my dying day I'll defend Kubrick's The Shining because he captured tonally the dread that I felt reading that book. Yeah. Um, I and so I'll, I'll never. Oh, go ahead. No, no, finish up. I'm sorry. I was going to say, yeah. So I'll, I'll never like fully jump on board that whole it's a bad adaptation uh, train specifically because of that. And it's kind of where I'm breaking with a lot of people who are really loving the stand, uh, the mini, uh, the the new series is that I think that the the reason why it's not a successful adaptation for me in my mind is because it's not evoking the same feelings I had while reading largely in part to that uh, um, the fractured narrative that they're, that they're doing they're taking away any of the feeling of kind of living in this world by jumping backwards and forwards in time. 
Um, and so, you know, but that definition is different for everybody. Some people it's literally just if they get the characters right, or if they get a, their favorite scene, right. Or, you know, it really is down to the person to what makes a, a good adaptation or not. Yeah. I mean, I would go even further that, you know, I'm a gigantic fan of starship troopers and right. there are some things in common with a book, not a ton. Um, in fact, you know, they don't even have the, the jumpsuits, but you know, the funny thing is that it's, you know, sort of a reversal in an attack on the politics. It's a critique of the book. And American Psycho, in its way, is a critique of the book, too. And I think those are both wildly successful films, even if they're not necessarily all that loyal to the books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a question, and you know, like the lawnmower man answers, answers it in one way of, like, why do, you, why do you adapt a story to a movie? And, you know, A, it's because you know, you think it's a, a well-known story or a well-known author and that'll, you know, make it mo- more of a commercial venture. Or the other one is you like the story so much you want to tell it and you don't want the original creator to sue you. Right. <laughs> sue to take or your name off. you just had another script sitting around that you and you had the IP for Lawnmower Man and slapped that onto the pre-existing ship, uh, script. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's a funny thing. When I, re-wa- I know we're supposed to talk about the second one, but. Yeah. Oh, the, we'll get to it. But the other, there, there's a, there's a very Stephen King moment in the first Lawnmower Man that um, doesn't come from the Lawnmower Man story, but um, from The Shining, when the gas pump hose comes alive. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's true. Awfully reminiscent to the fire hose in the Overlook Hotel. That's true. Yeah. Yep. Bottom line, my opinion is that I don't think Lawnmower Man is a good movie, but I like it now. You know, I've seen it enough times now that I can appreciate what it is and appreciate how fucking bananas it is. Um, (laughs) But I I just overly sexual it is. And I'm, I'm one of those people where like, am I entertained or not? You know, that's really the bottom line on any movie, you know, and I don't like the term guilty pleasure. You know, I don't, you know, I'm totally with, I'm totally with you. I don't want to equivocate the things that I like. Yeah. Well, I'm going to maybe surprise you with, you know, an ultimately pass, you know, on a pass fail basis on Lawnmower Man 2. Oh, Lord. It's not. Oh, Lord. Well, (laughs) let me finish. (laughs) When you talk about what you get out of a movie, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes what you get is a satisfying narrative. That's not one of the things that you get out of Lawnmower Man too. Its pleasures are very are very different from that. But I mean, speaking about what makes a good adaptation, especially when you're talking about a short story, right? Like you think about Total Recall. You know, I think that short story ended when he went to the recall office and had the embolism. That that, that was more or less the end of the story. You know, and they kept going, and they were very much in the spirit of things. But what would be an appropriate feature length adaption of the lawnmower man short story there. I don't know. How would you expand that? You would know if you could, in my mind's eye, I thought about this a little bit last night. I think it's something like, I think it's something like Percy Jackson, right? That you're building out a world where Greek mythology is sort of hidden in the cracks of contemporary America. Right. So that would suggest that if you've got pan running this lawn service, you know, that you would have Aphrodite running Hallmark or <laughs> so on and so on and so on. <laughs> I, 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 no, I like this. I like this take. I'm, I'm into this. 
so like how does the world itself function though is it like fantasy like uh, what's the term fucking uh fantastical reality like that sort of thing where there are these just random element like so sounds like harry potter style where we have yeah. our world and there's a magic world like just yeah. just decided you know, it's, never- it's, it's a more adult horror version of that right Okay, I can I can see that take. I would watch that take for certain. Like, I don't, I don't know who the protagonist is or, or 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 what they're doing, but that seems like right. the way that you expanded. And you know, there's some kind of theme that he's beating at. I mean, this was written during the Ford administration, right? It was like '75, I think, when it was written. Sounds that right. It's you know, it's American decline. You know, and Harold was that the character? You know, it's like his life is in decline from. Losing the mower and the base and you know the baseball team isn't winning and the kid is moving out and nobody respects him anymore and the grass is growing out you know that kind of reflects what's go you know it's a a summer doldrums of um of 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 the world in decline and sort of a mid afternoon drunk where you know you kind of start to your dreams and your hallucinations and your hangovers all kind of blur into each other mm-hmm. but. While that all sounds very interesting, um, <laughs> we must return to the Lawnmower Man 2, which, well, no, it's, a, not, it's not the Lawnmower Man 2. Excuse me. Lawnmower Man it is, 2. Well, it's the Lawnmower Man. And for some reason, perhaps legal, Lawnmower Man 2. Beyond Cyberspace. I thought, this, I thought this movie was called Job's War, uh, but it's, it's uh, Beyond well, Cyberspace. Depends. I think it was Beyond Cyberspace in the theaters and then Job's War on home video. I swear to Christ, I've seen a cover box somewhere with Joe. There, it, 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 IMDb says, you know, that both t- that they've used both titles. Also known as Job's War. It had to go into witness protection at a certain point. <laughs> so, uh, Rodney, why don't you do the honors and sort of explain what is Lawnmower Man 2 about? <laughs> well, it's tricky. It's, tr- it's tricky, right? Yeah. Um I think I, I, I was it Scott, were you were you were you tweeting when you started to watch it that you know you said like oh my god eight times in the first 20 minutes cuz yes. it, it starts off like the first 10 or 15 minutes are just exhilarating right like with the <laughs> sheer audacity of some of the choices that they make from that's fair you know it, it it runs with you know Halloween 2 style you know beginning the second the first one ended and sort of giving us a little bit of a recap job is rescued um, th- for some reason, they eliminated the th- section of the phones ringing all over the world so that now he was in the net. Um, they kind of hoped that we would forget about that sequence because Job is <laughs> yep. still trying to <laughs> get into get into the world's infrastructure. But Inconvenient. Get rid of it. Job is rescued. Minus legs. Uh, minus minus legs. legs. Also minus face. That This is not the first time, I think, that an actor has been replaced and justified by uh, extreme plastic surgery. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it, be, before you move on, I was super confused at the beginning of this uh, as well because I for sure thought that they were going to have him uh his access point was he was able to upload himself into some other person. Oh, that would make total that would make perfect and, sense. And and I'm sitting there going, "Oh, it's Job. He's he's got all of his memories, but this is a perfect way for him to be Matt Frewer now." You know, it's like but he's not the yeah, Job. Well, that we I, mean, I get that. And they talk about plastic surgery though. I mean, I also have my imagination, and if they just told me that was the same guy, I'd say, "All right, it's a different actor playing him." I can, I can roll with that. But the the real weirdness is that Pierce Brosnan's character is now is never mentioned again, and there's this other guy who's kind of the same guy, but the character's name is different. 
yeah. Dr. Trace, that um, Patrick would Bergen. Be, would there be some legal? I, I can I can get that Pierce was busy and didn't want to do another one, but right. was the first one was before James Bond, and this is uh, and this is after. But it's so clear. It's so clear is that this is supposed to be. Uh, the same. He played the same guy. I mean, he, he could get plastic surgery too for <laughs> to protect his anonymity after the um a, after the virtual. Uh, well, Rodney, all, obviously, they're trying to you know expand the mythology of the Lawnmower Man world. We need more characters. We need more people. So they didn't want to go back to the Doctor Julius. What was his name in the first one? Mm, Doctor Julius Earring. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> Moving on, yes. Job, Job, Job is rescued, and I got to say again, you know, this is like the first ten minute suite when leglessly he's put in the gyroscope and he starts spinning out of control <laughs> as Beethoven's Ode to Joy plays. I mean, you're laughing now that I, you know, almost fell out of my chair um, with experience, experiencing my own joy of the insanity of that of of, of that image, which was shortly followed by a pan down to, you know, sort of Universal City Studios, Blade Runner, the theme park uh, yeah. <laughs> with the most audacious, like lower third I've ever seen. Um, Los Angeles, the future. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which, um, it, it, it has to be noted that the, the one returning cast member here is Austin O'Brien, who was the child actor who played Job's friend. Yes. Um, and, but that's so crazy because, He's aged in real time between right. these two movies that are like five years apart, maybe. Yeah, um, he but, went from like 11 to 15. Yeah, but the world has gone from South Pass. Right. It was filmed right around the corner from my house, and I recognized half the locations of, of, in the first movie. And even the guy the guy who played the cop by the birdbath is uh, a friend of mine. Is, is his, is he, he and his wife are really interested in um, – like historic preservation. So my wife knows him through those kind of groups, Troy Evans. Um, but we move from this bucolic suburban South Pasadena of 1992 to a full on Blade Runner dystopia in six years, real time, because that little kid is only aged a couple of years, has gone from a yeah. tween to a teenager. Yep. Which I love. Go on. Well, I think the move on saying Los Angeles, the future is to just make this movie evergreen so that generations beyond ours can also enjoy it. Right. Well, it's, it's, and I have to say, I've always wanted to go back to Blade Runner and where it says Los Angeles 2017. Is that the the thing that always cracked people up? It sounds about right. We'll get, we'll get pilloried for it if we got that wrong, but that's, (laughs) well, yeah, (laughs) but I always thought it would have been much cooler if it just said Los Angeles. Right. And it's like, this is the way we see the city without having to, you know, Hey, I can figure out it's sometime in the future because, you know, shit and (laughs) flying around. Um, And unless I need to connect this date to another because of, you know, a mystery that's going to solve some clue, I don't need the date. Um, And again, the future is a little redundant on this Blade Runner world, but again, I love it for, I just love it for its audacity. Um, uh-huh. And then our kid, Peter, like skateboards into the sewer where he um, has a whole group of cyber goonies um, who, are, who, are living in a, who are living in a train car with a dog genius who's never quite you know, called out for just how 
unbelievably talented and smart <laughs> this dog is able to load CDs into computers on command. Right. Oh, yeah. Very well trained. And just yeah. uh, the bit about them living in the boxcar, my wife was like, it's like the boxcar children meets hackers. And it's like, yes, that's that's correct. <laughs> um, I, 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 I'm going to go with the Cyber Goonies. Cyber Goonies <laughs> is, is a really good shorthand. Um, can't deny that. Can't deny but, that. Well, I, I want to take a, a quick step back when I when we're talking about that sort of Blade Runner world that it takes place in. Um, and some of it looks pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, this movie does have sort of a, you know, a cyberpunk um, chops. I mean, the guy directed it, Farid Mann, um, who IMDb says is some kind of like boy genius, had a like a student film that really blew up and he's still working. He's shot like a, a, a hundred movies and music videos and TV episodes and things. He um, shot the pilot for uh, Max Headroom. Max Headroom, which is, you know, I couldn't be a bigger fan of Max Headroom and that pilot about Blipfurt's is unbelievable um as is and that was the u.s pilot there was the uk series that ran for uh for two seasons and that thing was created by this husband wife team rocky and annabelle who were you know sort of music video superstars of the 80s and did the uh super mario brothers movie which has among other things a very interesting um you know blade runner dystopia future world um down in the sewers that is Kind of That's beautifully true. designed, yeah. even if the movie doesn't always, doesn't always come together. He is also, I would just like to point out, uh, the director of the TV movie adaption of Dean Kuntz's The Face of Fear. Is that good? I haven't seen it. Oh, we have. I I haven't seen it. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, <laughs> I have um, not. I have not spent a lot of time going out of my way to catch up with Dean Kuntz. But you know, with Matt with Matt Frewer, who is Max Hedrum, you know, on board as Job. This is kind of a a Max Hedrum reunion. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I do I like that about it, but I think Matt Frewer as Job is, he's playing it like so manic. And there's all there's a large strip of Jim Carrey in that oh, performance. Oh, no, no question. This is yeah, like the yeah. height of like Ace Ventura yeah. mania. And, and here, here's what's fucked up about it is I actually liked him when he first appears to uh, Peter in the virtual realm. And this is like, this is good Job. Right. Job is like, this is my friend, Peter. I, you know, I need your help. I'm, I'm being held against my will, you know, kind of thing. You're just like, okay, now this is interesting. Like this is, he realized the error of his ways. Cause at the end of the lawnmower man, like he kind of goes out of his way to save Peter. Right. And like kind of dooms himself to do it and, and all this stuff. And you're like, okay, he had a little bit of a redemption thing. And this is where he's going. And then for no reason whatsoever, like the second he gets a little bit of help, he's like, ha fucker, I got all you guys. I just wanted the <laughs> cryon chip, you know, or whatever. And when he does that, he flips from being like the empathetic Matt Frewer, who I actually was like, holy shit, this is like, you know, he's kind of delivering a a little bit of a touching, you know, you're my good friend performance. And then he just turns into... Uh, Jim Carrey in the mask, you know, uh, but like the dollar store version of it for. for, for all. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, he is kind of all over the place, but you know, again, I've all, I also read that this was, you know, sort of movie that they were fighting about the edit. Um, and I wonder, you know, what the director's cut of this thing would look like. Cause there are times when this movie is, you know, sort of a Blade Runner esque cyber thriller. And then there are times where, you know, it feels more like a kid's movie, you know, and I think some of Matt Frewer's, um, antics, you know, kind of, 
<laughs> put it to that point. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, listen, no, no matter what, this is still a movie that has a dude who's introduced as being the father of, of VR, <laughs> you know, yeah. oh, a middle-aged white guy who we see on the stand is like a, a doctor. And then they go to find him and he's, he's dressed in like shaman robes and he's got like Indian, like, you know, staff with eagle feathers hanging out of his hair and he's playing it so seriously. And, uh, um, and I got total Tommy Wiseau in the room vibes uh-huh. from this guy. Um, just in terms of like his appearance where he's kind of like, you know, was was like a guy that's obviously trying to look about 10 years younger than he actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, I, I looked this guy up and I guess he's an Irish actor and, and I had to look it up because the way he was delivering some lines, it just had that was like, this isn't right. This is somebody trying to affect an American accent on something. I, w- I was looking at his outfit too. And in his hair, like he even has dreads, you know, thinking that you know, like sort, sort of mid nineties, you know, where, where's this, what is the space of dreads in science fiction? Right. Like, you know, I <laughs> had those, you know, Jamaican aliens, which, uh-huh. you know, had this sort of whole Afro future kind of a, kind of a vibe and if you go to like brother from another planet had them or even ice tea in johnny mnemonic um, right or battlefield earth there's lots of dreads and battlefield yeah, earth. predator right but yeah you know what he he looked the most to me like i don't know if you guys remember there was a comic i think there's a cyberpunk um adjacent comic in the 80s called uh grimjack i've I heard of that, that but i've never read it yeah, Timothy Truman thing. I think we, I think it was a first comics, sort of one of the first wave of kind of indie ground level comics, and he had that look of beret when there were a lot of berets in this movie. Beret um, <laughs> trench coat, dreads, pirate earrings, lots of stuff hanging off of his. Like there was a a real messiness, right, about like '90s science fiction. Um, that goes both to costume design, but also, you know, all these sets where there's cables and boxes of CDs and upon carpet that, you know, couldn't be more opposed to sort of the neat and clean Star Trek 2001 kind of uh, space age aesthetic that preceded it, you know, and this, and, and these guys are working deep into that mode to make our, to make the scientists sort of, well, he's also kind of like what John Matrix in Commando, right? Like he's done his time and now he's yeah. off in the woods trying to trying to mind his own business until the man brings him back to with some crisis. One last right. case. Some cyber crisis. We got a we got a Job loose in the hen house. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. So Job wants this he 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 well not he wants. He's building this this cryon chip that apparently will give him complete freedom with to access everybody in in the world once vr becomes a real thing the hest of this you know sort of capitalist monster um whose offices are in the um griffith park observatory (laughs) i I want to talk about things that i really like about this movie because i love seeing movies that are shot in los angeles and doing things like taking the griffith park observatory and turning it into some monstrous um um, you know, f- fascist future uh, capitalist nightmare filled with, you know, security guards with uh, Nazi uniforms and backlit smoke machines. 
You know it from La La Land and Lawnmower Man 2 beyond cyberspace. It's the group. And of course, a lot of cause. Right? <laughs> yes. yes. But, but that's third on the list, actually. Yeah, so. third on the list. Third on the list. <laughs> uh, so he wants he wants this, this cube or his, the, it's like a pyramid device and there's something built into it called Egypt which is like I guess the he, the only thing they really say about it later is like Matt Frewer really wants to know what it is because he's worried it's going to screw up his plans kind of and then he just says fuck it I'll just build a new one without it somehow or whatever I don't know exactly what happened it was like they had to do a whole Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of idol swap when they were when they broke into the office right you know, with an ice cube because there was a laser that can exactly, tell heat exactly <laughs> describing um, this movie out loud sounds like insane ramblings it the sounds- real, but the real one was hidden inside the mouth of a sarcophagus inside of the ceo's office yes right that, Nash- he, had to, that he had to bring out to brag about in front of the security guards <laughs> yeah um oh. I would like to talk a little bit about the presentation of cyberspace in this movie. This Fair movie enough. was made in 1996, and I feel like maybe they weren't able to hit the mark in terms of the original vision versus what the budget was. Do y'all think that was the case? Well, it's so hard I'm to look very at- sarcastically. Well, <laughs> I don't. I mean, I, I give them more. You know, I give them more credit than you do that it's really hard in 2021 to look back at 1996 computer graphics and judge how good they look, right? Like, okay. Uh, at the time, the animation in Lawnmower Man 1 looked amazing. Um, and I think they both went through, I mean, what I'm going to call the uncrappy valley, <laughs> which is that if. Sometimes that, especially computer effects for some reason, but I mean, there may be something to handmade effects too, that the state of the art or, you know, even halfway there looks pretty cool when it's brand new. And then there's a period, a few years where they head into this valley of being dated and corny. But Mm -hmm. I think that eventually they come out again and they have kind of a cool, distinctive look. And not only... Does it look, you know, completely unlike computer animation today? It would be really hard, I think, to create that stuff. I think it's aged and I think it has kind of a nice patina at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, like going back to comics, I don't know if you guys ever read like Shatter, the uh, cyberpunk comic that was all done uh, digitally. I have not. I think it was late 80s, early 90s, by Sains. Um, and that was when like to do comics in comp- digitally was insanely difficult. He would scan stuff and he had had 3D models and then some of it would be colored by hand and it would be rephotographed two or three times. And when it was new, it was state of the art and it was really arresting. You know, it was kind of a Blade Runner inspired story. And then a few years go by and it looks kind of dated, but you look at it now, you know, and it's like a flyer to the coolest club, (laughs) you know, you could imagine. In the same way, I think like a lot of this movie, you know, to sit at home with someone who's not into it and watch it beginning to end. I mean, it's not quite as bad as listening to um, in the death house, <laughs> um, you know, with strangers in a secluded cabin, but I can see the magic getting sucked out of it, but there's 20 minutes or maybe even more that this movie that you could cut and project, you know, in a club that would just look 
awesome as you're, you know, nursing a drink and, you know, listening to Meat Beat Manifesto or, you know, <laughs> highlights of like industrial dance music from from the I, 80s I, and 90s. I want to know where this club is, where they're listening to Meat Beat Manifesto <laughs> and watching fucking B-roll from Lawnmower Man Soup. You're imagining a place that does not even exist, sir. And I used to go to a well, god well, it club. Should, it should. Well, it should. <laughs> yeah, fair. I mean, we that's another that's another discussion, but my impression of I'm going to go I'm going to say 90% of the uh digital effects work in this movie looked to me like a Nickelodeon show that I would have watched in the late 90s, mid 90s. People who are clearly on wires, they were photographed, now they're being suspended against uh mm-hmm. a background that looks like what was that fucking thing called in the early 90s? Uh the we talked about it on the first Lawnmower Man episode. The something I maybe it was like you could oh. buy a videotape of it. Oh, like the um, like the compilation of um, yeah, bleeding edge uh, computer animation. Yeah, what was that called? Beyond the Eyes. Imagination. Listen, listeners, you're gonna have to go back to our very first kink episode. <laughs> beyond Beyond the Mind's Eye, maybe the Mind's Eye. Yes, there was yeah, the yeah, Mind's yeah. Eye, and then there was Beyond the Mind's Eye. My dad had both of those. He was a computer guy, and he was just, like, fascinated by this shit. They had that sex scene from Lawnmower Man where the two characters, like, the Chrome characters are kind of morphing into each other. Yeah, morph boning. Correct term. But uh, I I found the effects in this movie far less convincing than the first one. And you know what? I'm going to look it up. What was the budget on the first one? This was $15 they had to work with here. Okay, the first one had ten million, so they had an extra five million dollars to work. Definitely with. Felt, felt bigger, yeah. Well, they, how much? I, I think that again, that Blade Runner like backlot set that that's an expensive thing to make. Yeah, that looked uh, practical to to a great degree. I mean, there's that's a lot of dressing going on there on top of something else, but all of that shit is fine. It's it's the cyberspace stuff that that concerns me. It keeps me up at night. Makes me ask my wife, "Who are you?" You know. <laughs> I, that, that that stuff has aged well for me. I dig it. Yeah, I don't know. The, 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 I, think, I think I think it's got a. I think it's got a. I think it's got a cool atmosphere. Well, that that transformer, you know, bullshit that happens with Matt Frewer right at the beginning, <laughs> oh, kind, of, kind of a tone setter. It's like one of the worst things I've ever seen in a in a studio film. And it gave me again. I saw that though, and I, I laughed. I, I felt joy watching that image. Mm-hmm. I laughed too, but I was laughing at its expense, not not with it. Um, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fine line, and, the, and there's something towards the end where, like, they build like this. I guess it, it, they're building a new city, and in the middle of the city, it, it virtually, and in the middle of the city is like a capital dome, essentially, and uh, that's like all grayscale, and you know, it looks like previs today, and that's it's the finished version. So there's that. I, I that kind of stands out. But then there's also weird stuff like they have uh, all these people that plug into VR at the end to become the audience. Oh, the yeah. one of the funniest things that I've, I've ever fucking seen in my life is if you watch this movie, uh, which you can rent it on YouTube. That's what I did. I paid money to watch this fucking thing. Two dollars. Um, I paid two ninety nine because I wanted the HD version, sucker. Um, because I had that extra resolution, I was able to see the extras in this uh, scene. And if you watch it, like look at them, and they cut to them 
at least a dozen times in the last 30 minutes of this movie. Uh, and they, it's like they had, uh, they filled a stadium with uh, a bunch of extras saying, we'll give you like a free hot dog or something. If you come and sit here and you just need to move. And like, that was all the direction they were given. So if you actually look at it, there's like some people that are like, just like holding their arms up and like shifting them like robots. There's people that are like pointing (laughs) and, and you know, in one direction and, and like, it it is, it is the most bizarre fucking thing I've ever seen. Um, And, but I, but to your point, I was entertained throughout this whole, whole movie. I never in a million years would have, would have thought that. And I think a lot of it comes from my surprise in that the only thing that I'd seen from this movie before watching it for the show were the cheap, uh, CG stuff that doesn't hold up the computer animation stuff. And then when the, they're shooting the real world stuff and it's uh, a, a cinematographer by the name of Ward Russell who shot it, who shot, uh, the last Boy Scout and Days of Thunder. You know he's Top Gun. They have a legit cinematographer using like real lenses. Like you know you can tell that the prime lenses he's using are like mm-hmm. crystal clear, and it's like this is like a very well shot movie for like sixty <laughs> percent of it. Yeah, I think that it's, and I I think I told this to both of you at some point, but I think that it is a more of an actual movie in the classical sense than the first lawnmower man. It has, uh, the plot doesn't really make a lot of sense, but it's good enough for a three act thing. And it jettisons a lot of the weird personality that the first one has. But that's my favorite thing about the first one is how just fucking, you know, ill-advised the whole situation is. This one is more, uh, more of a formulaic take on, I can't believe I'm saying this, but this franchise, I did not enjoy this. I didn't even enjoy it on a level of like something went disastrously wrong here, but this is like a one of a kind thing. I feel like I've seen many movies like this. And so I came away from the experience just uh, I don't think I'll be watching that movie again, but I'll tell you what, I'll keep watching Lawnmower Man. It's got that weird shit going on under the hood and it doesn't completely add up and it's it feels like a fever dream in a way that this one does not. I feel that the first one is a more conventional movie. It, just in that, if we're talking about, you know, sort of the narrative as opposed to, you know, f- a fun, audacious spectacle that um, there's like an evolution in the relationships in law norm. And the first one that is more linear and sensible, both of them. I think that, I think they're the, the problems, you know, um, as far as far as narrative goes, that both of them are like two or three things happening, and it's sort of confusing. Of well, what is this really about? Because like for a while, the first one feels like is this of mice and men or flowers for Algernon, or is it Carrie? Right, like when Job starts to get revenge on you know all mm-hmm. the folks who had taken advantage of him, but then it's that's it's not because it it keeps going, and it's this whole other this whole other struggle, like towards the end, I think that this felt like there was a moment and this doesn't happen until there's only like 20 minutes left, maybe where Job presents himself as a cyber savior. Right. And that's like when that theater scene opens, right? like, Oh, that could have been a whole movie where Job is holed up someplace and he's building a cult of personality as opposed to something that happens at the end after multiple chases back and forth you know, is, is Dr. Trace Indiana Jones where he's or, 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 or John Matrix coming in to, to stop this or you know, there's just like I wasn't even sure for a while 
who the main character was. Um, <laughs> right. It starts off being the, being Peter, right? right. You, you're Peter, it, for a while, we were just with uh, that female doctor. I'm sorry, I forget her name. Um, that that she's kind of takes Corey over the whole narrative. Is her yeah. There's another scene that I wanted to mention. And um, it's interesting because I think before we started recording, I was talking to Eric that, you know, Lawnmower 1, you know, man, there's an awful lot of sex and weird sex and uncomfortable sex mm-hmm. in that story. Oh, yeah. um, and very little in the second, though. I think I, I think most of it's appropriate in the first, you know, because, again, if we're uh, if we're trying to talk about like what is cyberpunk you know sort of the the way that people's identities can shift in the virtual world is kind of a big part of it and that can really lend itself to sexually charged you know (laughs) dramas Mm -hmm. um and that's largely gone in the second one which you know i think you mentioned nickelodeon and i talked about the goonies that some of it you know a third of this feels you know kind of like a kid's movie for a while but then there's that bathroom scene where Corey walks and follows the um, CEO into the, into the bathroom. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, wait, hold on a second. Can you describe this for people that may not have seen All right. it? All right. Well, there's this amazing scene, you know, where, you know, if you were watching this in a theater, I'm sure you would, you'd be able to hear a pin drop. You know, <laughs> <laughs> while people watched is she, she, she works at this evil company that has Job trying to make the chip for them. And they think they're going to, the CEO is, you know, a completely corrupt capitalist monster. Um, and she's starting to figure out what's really going on. So she confronts the CEO and he avoids her, walks into the bathroom and she follows him. And he's standing at the urinal as they're having their confrontation. And then midway through, he just unzips and starts to pee right in front of her. Yeah, he's like, fuck it. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm right to be here in the first place. I'm doing this. Yeah. And it's a power play, right? I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. There, there's a hundred weird, uncomfortable things about it. You know, most dialogue scenes in movies in general are kind of power plays. One character wants the other character to do something, you know, and it's kind of the strange, grotesque alpha move that he pulls in that scene. And it reminds me of, you know, another favorite <laughs> urinal scene in cyberpunk cinema, which is Robocop, you know, and Michael Miner from Ro- who co-wrote Robocop with Newmeyer co-wrote this, right? And there's that amazing scene, you know, where Johnson and um, what Miguel Ferrer are having that confrontation <laughs> in front of the urinals at, uh, at, at the OCP office. Um, you know, that one's, you know, a little better, <laughs> granted. Yeah. Yeah. But I do I do wonder if both of those scenes are coming out of Michael Miner's hands. That's what he's coming in there to do. They're like, we gotta get Miner in this. We need a fucking we need urinal. A good urinal scene. Yeah. Right? That's what this movie is that's what this movie is missing. Here's the thing though, is is the problem with this movie, or one of the main problems of the movie, is that you know, I made the comparison to the room uh a little bit. It has some of that in what the first movie doesn't. The first movie you know, is bonkers. It's crazy, but it feels like that they're using take three and four, right? When people are in the groove, you know, when people are are delivering their lines the way it's supposed to be delivered. There's a an introductory scene here where a helicopter flies down with a senator who has to approve uh, this v, this VR thing. Essentially, the life of this VR experiment lives and dies on whether or not this senator approves of uh, this program, and he 
uh, of course, he's smoking a pipe in everything that senators do. Right. And um, he flies in and there's this awkward like meet and greet at the helicopter where they go to like shake hands, but they like pause and it, it, but it's not scripted that way. It's just obviously this was like the rehearsal version of the scene, but that's the one that's in the movie. Right. Where people are delivering their lines a little too late. Like somebody goes in for a handshake and the guy doesn't see it until they're halfway out there and they're pulling their hand back as he like puts his hand out to grab like all that shit's happening within the context of the scene. And it feels very Ed Wood where it's like one and done. We'll just, you know, fuck it. We're, we're moving on. We only have this helicopter for, you know, one hour or whatever. What you're describing is cinema verite and you may just not be ready for it. I got to. I got to say, if you pulled a gun and asked me what was wrong with the scene where a, a senator came out of from the helicopter, not only would I not be able to remember it, <laughs> but 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 I but I don't think I would. I had observed it um, nearly as closely as you did. This is what and, happens and, when you bring for a lot of the extra dollar for the HD version of the YouTube <laughs> rental. other people don't see. I, I guess so. You didn't mention that this movie predicted iPhones. Yes, yeah, I was gonna bring that up. That that is the name of the the device. They're they're iPhones, but probably E Y E phones. But so the, like, this movie could have gone into profit quick with a canny uh, copyright lawyer. <laughs> Do you guys <laughs> scanning through IMDb that Molly Shannon appears in this film? I, I see that as a homeless woman. I do not have any memory of this, but I also I, I was I was tremendously high when I watched. Well, this that, that could have been that, that that could have been that looting scene, which again was another one that I would just love to watch. You know, sort of as video wallpaper. You know, when right. when Job, you know, sort of was trying to create chaos in the city, and money was spraying out of the ATMs, which perhaps is a tribute to um, the Coke cans flying out in maximum overdrive. <laughs> Um, oh my God, do you think Job is the reason why it's not it's not the alien ship hiding in the tail of the comet? It's actually <laughs> Job all the trucks against uh, against people and maximum it makes it, it it makes perfect sense. It could be that those the, it, it sure would annoy Stephen King, but it does feel <laughs> like you could <laughs> that, that 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 you could spin that, especially since. Um, more so in the first one than the second one, that somehow Job acquires magical psychic powers that can affect things in the real world, you know, even without an electronic interface, like squeezing toothpaste or like when his head kind of appears as a hologram and makes people dissolve into little spheres. Right. <laughs> Which uh, that, that's noticeably absent in, in this movie. There, There is none of the psychic stuff, right? It's all just him plugged in or it's part of the... The net is where his power is here. I, I don't recall. Which, argu- which arguably makes more sense. Advantage Lawnmower right. Man 2. <laughs> I think that his power comes from his costumes, which are essentially Vincent D'Onofrio's costumes from The Cell. You know, if oh, you that, amazing that, gold, that amazing golden armor that he has? Yeah, 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 yeah. If it he can look-, look like anything in cyberspace, why not look like, you know, a golden Greek god? Why wouldn't you have like a fucking suit on or something, though? Job, because Job grew up on comics, and he's doing his Jack Kirby, you know, like an Hercules suit in there. Man, I wish I wish that that was at all in the movie because that would be way cooler to to draw that parallel. Because that you're right, that's what Job and and uh, Peter bonded over were comic books. It would be so much if they just put a little bit of thought into the Job and Peter relationship. That like I would have 
I would have enjoyed this movie a little bit more uh, because for right now, this movie is all about Job trying to take over. It should have been like Job and Peter. Once again, you know, this is the one human that I like. This is the one person I sacrificed my power for last time. And that's the heart of the redemption. They try to go for it again. But like you said, there is no main character. They just they backburnered Peter and he has nothing to do for the whole middle of the movie except for run. But they still try to give that uh, redemption arc to Job at the end where he, you know, kind of loses a sword fight, which, you know, when you see the first uh, lawnmower man, you know, the sequel has to have a giant He-Man style sword fight in virtual reality uh, to act as a capper on things. Bring it all um, home. To bring well, it all the, home. And, and the genius dog doesn't even get to save the day at the end. No, the genius dog puts one mini CD into a, a shoot and then like literally just carried through the rest of the movie. <laughs> Desperately out of that sewer. But I don't know. It seems like that that emotional beat was was something that they thought of in like at the planning stages, right? Just like it was quite obvious that the whole movie was originally designed to be a battle of wits between the Pierce Brosnan character and the Jeff Fahey character from the first movie. And then they just said, nope, can't do that. And we'll just graph this on to some other idea. Well, I think that's part of the problem too, right? It's like switching Brosnan to um, Dr. Trace that he doesn't have any relationship to Job. Right. I mean, this is obvious. I mean, listen, if this was made in the MCU version of, of cinema today, they just wouldn't have made the movie if they couldn't have had the kid from the first movie go to the door of grizzled uh, hermit Pierce Brosnan. You know, it's like that. That is what they would have done. It's like this is Job's back and I need your help. Boom. The biggest question is why that character is swapped. I mean, I get you don't it's not Pierce, but, you know, we I can. I can I can roll with different actors playing the same character, especially, you know, supposed to be many years later. In fact, I would have replaced let Peter be like 25 so that society had time to fall. <laughs> it's because I what in the hell happened in those six years that turned <laughs> that, 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 that turned South Pasadena into. Uh, <laughs> and, they, and they could have e- not easily explained it, but they could have said, you know, listen, when they found Job. He had the secrets to a giant jump in technology. They could they could have at least tried to have a have a, a throwaway line, but you know, in this is all the result of Job, and Job is essentially using, you know, this new super futuristic technology that he's introduced as a way to take over humanity. Like that 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 at least tracks. It might be ridiculous, but it tracks. And here it's just nope, it's the future now. Or what if Job is dead? I mean, if we're going to pu- try to punch up this script um, 30 years too late. But what if Job's body died, but his spirit was in the machine? Right. And now we're, you know, 50 years later, Peter is a middle-aged or older man and somehow comes across, wait, you know, revives the AI that Job has become. That would have followed the actual ending that they ignored from the first movie of all the phones ringing to let essentially just let everybody know that Job is now part of the net. So then, then you're in some Tron territory, which would have been like Tron legacy territory, which, which would have been way cooler. I think you're, you're right. Well, maybe, Instead maybe, maybe it's 2001 where there's the tragedy of having to turn them off. Right. Mm. Well, I got good news for you guys. Oh, and that's that late last year, director Brett Leonard who shared screenwriting credit uh, on the first film, says he's currently developing a follow-up. 
there's legalities preventing him from calling it Lawnmower Man 3. So I guess they're calling it L-Man Reborn. Um, but apparently it. the idea is to ignore the events of the second one. So perhaps you'll get that from L-Man. So we, we, got, a legacy, we got a legacy sequel like um, the new Halloween or uh, Godzilla right. Final War. Yeah. yeah. Yes. From these flagship franchises. You know, I, 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 I'll tell you, I'll, I'll check it out. I think like Brett Leonard was always sort of a mad genius ahead of his time. If that tracks now, I'm dying to see what he's, what, what, what he's come up with. Yeah. I'm very curious, like why, why on earth he would return to that? Well, but of course I'm going to fucking watch Lawnmower Man 3 or L Man. Didn't, didn't they also announce, uh, announce that Pierce Brosnan and Jeff A. He were, were attached to come back oh, or yeah. something. What? Yeah, I don't believe that for a goddamn minute. Yeah. I don't believe Brosnan is back. Well, I mean, now that the world is actually kind of caught up to that technology, right? Like, literally, we got an Oculus last night, and uh, yep. me and my boy were, you know, jacked into cyberspace all morning before I hopped on this <laughs> uh, 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 on the podcast. Surfing so, the webs. I think it's an, a fascinating time to do it. Maybe make yeah, it a well, v- maybe make it a VR experience. VR is becoming bigger and augmented reality is becoming a bigger thing. Um, I have a quest as well. And it's um, the time's kind of primed for this to be, you know, kind of relevant to, to the larger world, especially with everybody being so isolated now and reaching out, at, you know, through, as you were mentioning earlier with uh, your documentary, like we're reaching out through the internet in ways that we never had to do a year ago you know, in terms of finding connection. And, and there, there is something there. There is something there. I just don't you believe I mean? this movie is ever going to happen. If it does happen, Brodney, you're going to have to come back. We're going to have to dig into all that shit. But um, I'll, I'll, I'm looking forward to that. I, I, maybe you can actually pull King into it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Never. Maybe, 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 they, maybe they can do a real collaboration. How much hard sci-fi has King really done? I mean, there's Running Man. There's... None of um, them are titles you'd want to mention. Uh, yeah. Dreamcatcher, Langoliers, maybe a little bit. I still classify Langoliers as horror, but those efforts have not been uh, exceptional. So I'm looking up quotes about this L Man Reborn, by the way. Sorry to circle back to there, but he does not say that Pierce Brosnan is attached. He was talking about his sequel to Lawnmower Man that he wrote uh, before they went forward with uh, Beyond Cyberspace a.k.a. Job's War, that did have uh, Pierce Brosnan returning. Uh, so that's where I got that confused. But he did say that his se- current sequel involves characters from the first Lawnmower Man, a young boy played by Austin O'Brien in the original is grown up. He's become a cyber warrior and was, of course, a veteran of the cyber war with China. Of that course. That all took place in virtual reality. Well, it sounds thrilling. I'm down. If Brett Leonard comes back for a Lawnmower Man 3, and I'm... I could not be more skeptical of such a thing happening. I don't know that I really give a shit unless Fahey is involved. But I will I will grant that I think Fahey might be down for it. You know, enough time has passed. I, I don't know that he's doing a lot of other things right now, which is not a, a judgment call on, on Jeff Fahey. But I don't really give a shit about an extenuation of this mythology if... Fahey's not involved specifically in Brosnan. I think I think you're never getting Brosnan back, period. How much nostalgia is there for, for Lawnmower Man? You know, everything kind of ages 
funny. I think it's kind of the lower end, to be honest. But uh, it's it exists, but it's yeah, it's, it exists know. for sure. The most popular episode of this show that we've ever done was uh, with Sarah Beatty and and Lawnmower Man. Some of that is Sarah Beatty, but there's got to be more to it than that. I think people of a certain age, and and specifically like King fans, like us who are of a certain age, like Lawnmower Man is this sort of it's it's sort of an anomaly in the middle of the 90s you know where like you clowned it when you were younger but now that you've kind of watched it and absorbed what it actually is and its place within the context of the 90s i think there's a reappraisal going on a little bit i just think that the thing is that not a lot of people are doing that reappraisal it's specifically king fans it's specifically people from that era and specifically uh, people with an appreciation for, you know, sort of 90s cheese. Yeah. And I wonder if, how, if if there's a bunch of them that are younger guys, kids in their, you know, teens or early 20s who only came across it recently and, you know, are kind of struck by how different it looks like everything else <laughs> that, that that they might click on. Kind of like the, the Speed Racer, like Vaporwave remix crowd. Right. <laughs> yes. I wonder, is the first Lawnmower Man, is it like predominantly on a streaming platform? Like, I'm wanting to say it's on the, like Hulu or, or Amazon Prime or something. If, if it was like Netflix, new to Netflix, then you would get that. That just always happens now. There is like a There's, fancy Blu-ray with a director's cut that I've never seen. Right. Yeah. That, that Scream Factory put out. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, kids aren't buying Blu-rays <laughs> these days. If it's not, you know, right in front of them on, on a Netflix, they're, they're not going to see it. No, um, it's it's only available on it's on Max Go okay. or Cinemax via via Amazon. Hoopla, Hoopla. Yeah, I don't know what that is. And uh, Directv. Otherwise, you're paying three bucks to rent it on Prime. But I do agree that if if Netflix, specifically Netflix, dropped Lawnmower Man, like we got Lawnmower Man now, I bet you would see like a wave of fucking interest in that again. Yeah. Yeah, it that, does. That's, that's feel how, like a thing that younger viewers would would appreciate the bonkers aspects of it. And, yeah, well, you know, for the folks who load up that cyberpunk video game and it crashes, so they need to <laughs> <laughs> exercise that Jones in another in, an, in another way. The reboot I'm holding out for is Max Headroom. Speaking of Fruer, oh man, I'm confident. I, I think that's going to happen. I mean, there's something about that character and the way the 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 amazing way kind of like Alf or the Petco dog that he was able to transcend any one show to appear in music videos and TV commercials and other people's shows. Right. If Netflix gave Pee Wee a new movie, then they sure shit can give Max Headroom a new movie. Yeah. That'd be amazing. You could definitely reboot Max Headroom. You totally that, reboot. Yeah. That's that's a slam dunk idea. I don't know if it has the the cash that you know people that might be buying up IPs or seeking them out would be terribly interested in because it's so fucking hyper specific. And um, you would need to bring someone onto that. That's pardon the term, but sort of visionary in the sense that they understand the world and they're like, okay, you know, now we're going to do a new thing with it. You know, like if Charlie Brooker came to Netflix and was like, all right, I want to pause black mirror for a few years and do Max Hedrum. I bet he could get that pushed through within a day. You know? Yeah, or Tycho with TD or... Um, oh, yeah. Who's the guy who did... Um, he was going to reboot Alien in um, Robocop. He did... Um, Neil Blomkamp? Yeah, Blomkamp's fucking um, Max Hedrum. <laughs> I'd, I'd, be, I'd, I'd, I'd be camped out for tickets for a week in a tent. 
That'd be something for sure. Uh, Rodney, this is usually the point in the show where we allow our guests to tease what they've got coming up next. Do you have, um, do you have any idea what your next project is? And if so, can you tell us anything about it? Well, I mean, the big one still is, you know, glitch in the matrix, um, on demand now in other respects, it's the back catalog and stuff that I'm developing and pitching, but it's not going to come out for a little, not going to come out for anytime soon. So no, you can't tell us anything about. I'd, I'd love to be able to, right? <laughs> plotting a documentary has to be way different than plotting a narrative film. I imagine the pre-production angle, like you would have to sink a couple years of investment in terms of investigating the topic. Exactly, um, and you know, often there's a, a couple of those going at once, and they don't all, and they, they, and all those eggs, you know, aren't viable. Right? <laughs> they, they they don't all hatch, and. Like in this one, you know, I was really lucky, you know, to do it. Um, Ross Dinnerstein, who was uh, a producer of The Nightmare, produced this one. And, you know, gigantic credit to him as he had, you know, the um, insanity to move ahead with this thing before we, you know, we started making it before we knew what it was, right? Um, I didn't know what the story was going to be. I didn't know what it was going to look like. These projects are always discovery. You know, we, I don't know what the scenes we're going to be filming are until people tell their stories, and, you know, in, in almost every one of these, how we're going to visualize these things is something that develops along the way, too. So it takes a fair amount of trust to to start one of these things before, uh, you know, before anybody knows what it's going to be. Well, I think the only thing you need to know right now is what's really hot is that your next documentary has to have a minimum of 1,700 drone shots in it. Oh, okay. It's not getting made without those drone shots. So you're going to want to plan those, you know, plot those into, you know, whatever. I think I think we fucked this one up. I don't know that we have any drone shots in it. I, I don't, I don't know that any of your stuff has drone shots in it. Funny because we just got it. We actually just my my wife just got a drone for. uh, She's an architect, so for sort of scouting views from you know hypothetical windows. Well, there you go. There's your in for the next stage of your career. It's already been established uh thank you so much for joining us today this was i cannot believe we talked for 90 minutes about the lawnmower man too i'm happy we did though and we can put this one to bed uh eric you have anything you want to say no just thanks for for joining us man this was a great talk thank you guys um i'll see you on the other side yes indeed (laughs) Now in uh, in parlance of the the movie that we just discussed, we are all going to jack out. Time to jack out. <laughs> I jacked out like three times today. Many thanks to Rodney for joining us on the show, which uh, I believe is now this is a good opportunity to announce a really big change. This is not the King Cast anymore. It's going to be the Lawnmower Man Cast. Yes, we've decided to only talk about Lawnmower Man for the rest of the run of the show, and next week you guessed it is Lawnmower Man. <laughs> I think people are getting a little antsy about all the lawnmower man content, but uh, we are we are done with the lawnmower man for quite some time. Um, yeah, jo- Job has has gone away uh, unless we go out to like some giant guest and like Steven Spielberg Spiel- just happens yeah. to love <laughs> happens to love the say. lawnmower man. Uh, it's going to take a, a pretty giant name who we can't refuse. Stephen King says he finally wants to do the show, but all he wants to talk about is the lawsuit. We're we're open for it. But yes, yes absolutely. Uh, outside of those scenarios, I think uh, I think Job's gonna gonna be hanging out in his little uh, hexagonal Capitol building or whatever the fuck he, he is. Yeah, he's on the bench for the next year at least. I think. <laughs> you know, I mean, right. who knows what'll happen? But uh, I don't think uh, too many people are clamoring 
for the Lawnmower Man. But then again, Rodney was clamoring for Lawnmower Man too, so you really never know. And but it yes, was a good episode. I'm I'm really glad we did it. I'm glad we got it out of the way. And also this this paves the way for us to maybe take on some other Stephen King sequels that I am I am slowly warming up to the idea of doing that. Uh, after seeing a particularly funny clip from Children of the Corn 2 online yesterday, I'm kind of getting uh, turned on by that idea. So we'll see what happens there. But um, what do we got coming up on the show next week, Eric? What's the title? Ooh, so next week in the main feed, you're going to see us dipping our toes into a King short story, which was adapted into an 80s Twilight Zone episode. It's the lovely story of a boy and his evil grandmother, appropriately titled Grandma. Yes. And our guest on this episode is a former colleague of ours. He's done some work with Marvel. Lately, he's been working on the Miles Morales game that uh, is exclusive to the uh, PlayStation 5. And he offers a a really interesting read on on Grandma. Uh, This episode goes to some unexpectedly personal places. (laughs) And uh, I am personally very excited to get this episode out into the ether because I fucking loved it this is one when we finished recording it i was like i cannot wait for people to hear this so definitely tune in for that one and if you've never seen grandma be aware that you can more or less find it on uh youtube have if you've never uh caught that particular episode of the new twilight zone not the jordan peele twilight zone we're talking about what they called the new twilight zone in the 80s <laughs> yeah the new coke of of twilight zones in the uh in, <laughs> right. the, in the 80s and uh, this week on uh, the Patreon, we have uh, a hell of a bonus episode for y'all. Eric, why don't you do the honors on this one? I am so I'm still nerding out about doing this. Uh, so what it you're was going fucking be, rad. It was, I, so I'm, cool. I, it was one of those like shot in the dark things where I sent out an email to a, what I thought was a defunct or maybe not really working website. And through it got ended up getting forwarded to the great Michael Whalen who was the artist behind all of the amazing illustrations from uh, the first and last Dark Tower books. He did The Gunslinger, The Dark Tower. The, he's the guy that essentially drew what I picture Midworld to look like in my mind. And uh, he was excited to come on the show. So we have a KingCast interview with the great Michael Whalen this Friday, exclusively on our Patreon. He has a ton of interesting shit to say and stories to tell about working on The Dark Tower and he even kind of gets into the the art in the books that he didn't illustrate uh, yeah. and has opinions on those. It's just yeah, we, if you're a if you're a dark tower nerd or you're an art nerd, this is absolutely a thing you're going to want to hear. As somebody who's been obsessed with his art, particularly in the the dark tower books since middle school, this was a dream come true. Y'all are going to love it. All right, and I think that's it for next week. Definitely nothing that- else happening next week, right? No, no, I mean, def- definitely not. There's, it feels a little weird. You know, I, I don't know how exactly to explain it, but it's just like I've been feeling a little tingly. I'm I'm getting some odd texts. I'm getting weird emails. It's Well, we, yeah, I've talked about this on the KingCast Twitter feed. We've been getting these emails from a number of accounts that end in Altair4.com. We don't know what this is about. The Every response we send to them bounces back. They seem to be referring to another show entirely, but they're coming to us. 
it's just a it's it's a weird thing. Either we're getting pranked by another one of the Stephen King shows that's out there, which if that's the case, uh, very well played, gentlemen, because these are convincing these emails. But yeah, I don't know what that's about. Yeah, I'm sure we just got signed up on some weird list. It's it's fine. But, you know, in the meantime, I'd just like you guys to know we appreciate you listening. Uh, we would love it if you would rate and review the show on iTunes. You can always check us out on Twitter at KingCast19, our Patreon is patreon.com backslash the KingCast. Uh, and you're going to want to sign up to hear that Michael Whalen interview. I'm just saying. And if you want some merch, we have t-shirts still available over at the KingCast.StoreEnvy.com. Yeah. And good news to those who ordered the first batch of shirts. They should be shipping out this week. Indeed. I think that about does it for this week, doesn't it? That does indeed. We'll see you all next week for Grandma. Buckle up, folks. Fun week. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. Mm-hmm.